0: Joel chapter one verses one through twenty. Give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, "The word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders! Give ear, O in- all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten." What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine. It has splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark, their bark, and thrown it down, and their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The vine dries up. The oil. Languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, Go in pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as a destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off, Before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain grain has dried up. How the the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pasture's of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's, uh, As always, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you give it to us. Lord, we know that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask this morning that you would feed us from the bread of heaven, uh, even of Christ himself. Feed us by your word, give us grace to live by it more than we live by the bread uh, that that we eat. And we ask that you would work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. And, Lord, make us doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For we ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, uh, our present circumstances with this pandemic and all the things that have uh, come attached to that uh, in our land and all around the world have drawn my attention more and more to the book of Joel. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it might be a good thing. It might be helpful and beneficial for us to take just a few Sundays uh, at this time to look through this little book together. It's only three chapters long. It's rather short. Uh, as many of the minor prophets are, but its message, I think, the more I read it, the more convinced I am that its message is as timely as ever. That as timely as it was in Joel's day, it's no less timely for us as well. Now, the the prophecy of Joel, it's one of the books of the Old Testament that's uh, often grouped into a section called the minor prophets. You may be familiar with that, you may not. They're called minor uh, minor prophets not because their message is somehow less important than the major prophets, which are you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the, those those prophets, uh, their message is not less important than those major prophets, but uh, their message rather is is just shorter in length. The reason they're called minor prophets is, is just because their books are shorter. And so when you read Isaiah with 66 chapters and you read Joel with just three, that's all it means is it's a shorter book, and so uh, this message is just as important as uh, those of prophets like Isaiah. And Ezekiel, now in in a lot of ways, if you read through all of them, if you read through the minor prophets as well as the major prophets, what you'll notice is in in a lot of ways, despite the length and the brevity of one to the other, their message is pretty much the same. It might be condensed in some ways. It's more concise in the minor prophets, but their messages tend to be the same. They tend to warn the people, either of Judah or Israel, of God's impending judgment And uh, many times it warns them of God judging for wickedness and idolatry in the land. Uh, Very often in connection with that, there is almost always really a call to repentance. A call to repentance. There's often uh, in connection with that a promise of mercy for the repentant, as we've seen uh, over and over again. And also very often the promise of the Messiah is somehow involved in that promise of mercy for the repentant. In other words, A lot of the prophets, both minor and major, prophesy of the Christ who was to come. And we're going to see as we go through this little book, uh, especially next Sunday, that that is exactly the case in the book of Joel as well. Joel prophesied of the Christ who was to come in his prophecy. And In some ways, the minor prophets have, I think, an added advantage of their brevity. They get right to the point. They uh, are blunt and unmistakable in the messages that they tell us, not that the major prophets are any less blunt But sometimes a short and to-the-point message is what is needed, and I think that's true not just in Joel's day but in ours as well. And uh, you might know that the book of Joel, or you might not know this, is quoted many times in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ himself quoted from the book of Joel in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means they have the same view, they tell the same basic story. And so each one of them, uh, Jesus quotes, uh, from at some point the book of Joel. The Apostle Peter in the book of Acts on Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that great sermon on that day in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel as well. And then finally Paul in the very chapter that Rob mentioned in his reading this morning, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul quotes from Joel chapter 2. So uh, the apostles and Jesus himself uh, viewed Joel as holy scripture and so should we. They viewed not only Joel as scripture, they, they applied Joel's message to their own day. Many, many hundreds of years after Joel, uh, after Joel first uh, gave this prophecy, or God gave it through Joel. And so Joel was inspired scripture. It still has abiding authority and relevance for the church today, even our own church in this day. And that being the case, it's uh, well worth our time and attention. May God be pleased to use his word even in the book of Joel in our lives. To work in us what's well pleasing in His sight that we might, again, as we've just prayed, not be, not just hearers only, but doers of the Word. Well, the first thing that we see in our text this morning, I think, is a call. The prophet calls upon the people to remember and to listen and to remember. It's the first thing He tells them to listen and to remember the circumstances that they were undergoing and experiencing at their time had never been seen before. No one had ever seen anything like this before. And as I said a few Sundays ago, the opening words of this particular chapter remind us and it reminds me in some way of this whole pandemic and all the things that have happened, the way things have, you know, in some ways, our whole country has been shut down in a lot of ways. And it reminds me of these opening words in verses 1 through 3. Look there, Joel 1, 1 through 3. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, and he says, Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. And here it is. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And remember the first group he he says here is the elders. Has such a thing happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? The fathers of the elders, a previous generation, had they ever seen something like this? He says, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children And their children to another generation. So he's saying, listen up, you know, wake up, think about this. Have you ever seen anything like this in your life? Has your, have your fathers before you ever seen anything like this in all their lives? And what's the expected answer there? No, they hadn't. And so he tells them, not just that, like, this should get your attention, he's saying. You've, you've never seen, we have never seen anything like this before. It should get our attention. And then he says, we shouldn't forget. He says, tell your children and let them tell their children and let their children tell their own children after them. We, sh- we don't want to forget this. This is important, something we should pay attention to. And so the first thing that Joel does, and, and like any prophet or apostle does in Scripture, is establish uh, the source of the authority of his message. You, know, you, might, you might think that maybe the people that got this prophecy might have thought, well, why should we listen to Joel? Who's Joel? Who is, who is his father, Pethul? Why should we care what he has to say? So he says that it was the word of the Lord that came to him. This isn't, if it were just Joel or, or just me or anyone else saying this, we could just disregard it. Joel, the source of authority was not Joel. It was the fact that it was the word of the Lord that was given through him. Who was speaking when Joel was speaking in this, in this particular case? As the prophet, he was speaking God's word. It was God speaking through him. And so they were to pay attention to it as the word of God, and so we are to do even today. A prophet is a spokesman for God. A prophet is God's messenger or God's ambassador. His message is not his own, but it's the message of the Lord himself. And so Joel wastes no time in making this known right away. He's telling them right in the very first line of the prophecy that this was God's word. This was a message of divine importance and divine origin. It was not to be ignored. It was not to be disregarded or neglected and certainly was not to be left unheeded. And we should think the same way. When you read any part of scripture, that's what we should think. We should think this is God's word to us now. And we must not ignore it. We must not neglect it. And we must not leave it unheeded. And look at how he describes their current condition. He calls the elders. Who are the elders? Now, we think of elders uh, even today as those who are older than us. And the older I get, the older elders seem to be, right? But uh, the elders were not just old. They were the ones who were the leaders, typically. They were the ones who had the most experience in life. And then he adds all the, all the inhabitants of the land. And he tells both elder and inhabitants of the land alike to listen up, to hear what he has to say and what does he say, has such a thing, verse 2, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? In other words, have you ever seen anything like this in your entire life? Even even you elders, even you older folks, have you seen anything like this? And the answer is is implied, it's no. No one had ever seen anything like this. Their fathers had never seen anything like this. And I think that's the case with our current uh, situation as well. I actually had... Almost this exact conversation with one of our senior saints regarding our own circumstances, I asked him if he can ever remember anything like this in all his days, and he just shook his head and said no. could not, and and I doubt anybody else could say anything different. We've never seen the entire country shut down over anything. We've seen pandemics, we've seen diseases, but we've never seen the entire country shut down this way. Even during two world wars, We've never seen the entire country shut down this way, with millions of people being forced to lose their jobs. We've never seen, because of a disease or a pandemic, our God-given inalienable rights being alienated from us and suspended without constitutional authority by some of our government. Even to the extent, no less, of forbidding under penalty of fines and imprisonment the public worship of God's people on the Lord's Day, it has never happened in our in our country's history. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. No one you have ever known has ever seen any such thing. No one has seen such a thing. And so Joel, Joel takes it a step further, doesn't he? He tells the people to tell their children of it and to let their children tell their own children of it and let those children tell it to, verse 3, to another generation. What's the point? The point is they weren't to forget they want' to forget, and they must make sure that the following generations, multiple generations not forget either and Why is that we don 't want our children we shouldn 't want our children or even our grandchildren or great grandchildren to have to learn the hard way the things that we learn. No one should want that we we all want we should all want our children to, to do better than us to have it better than us. We should want the generations to follow. We should be willing to suffer so that they might not. And that's what he's saying. He's saying never forget. Don't forget these things. Wake up. See these things. Realize how, how distinct this is, how different this is, how remarkable this is, this God, this judgment from God. And make sure the following generations remember it so that they might not make the same mistakes that we do. You've probably heard the saying most of you have. Something along the lines of those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And I think that lesson has played itself out in real time throughout history, even in our country. You think, of, think of Pearl Harbor in World War II. The sneak attack. And what was the cry after that? Never forget. What, what was the point? Don't leave ourselves open to that kind of attack again. Don't make the same foolish mistakes that were made that cost so many of our military their lives. Think of the events of 9-11, the attack uh, back in 2001. You, you all, if you were alive then, I'm sure that you probably know exactly where you were when you first heard of it. I, I remember the exact room I was in and what I was doing when I heard the first reports. I was shaving in the morning on, on, on my, one of my days off and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. This, this attack, and, and what, what did everybody say after that? Never forget, well, it sure seems like a lot of people... In less than 20 years' time, have forgotten the lessons of 9/11. So, why why is it not why is it so important for us to not forget these things, especially what Joel was talking about? Why was it so important to never forget? We don't want our children to repeat those same mistakes of the past and re- and reap the same terrible consequences of those mistakes and sins of idolatry and other things. So, that's what Joel was telling the people of Judah here. In this, in, this, in this book, the Lord was teaching his people uh, a rather harsh lesson, something they had never seen or experienced before, and they must seek to avoid having to see anything like it again, or something much worse. Joel says in our chapter, something worse was coming if they didn't repent, the day of the Lord in verse 15. Now what was what was the calamity that Joel spoke of that they had never seen before, that had come from the hand of the Lord? It was not just some accident or chance circumstance that happened. Look at verse 4. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust had eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust uh, has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And so what what happened was, we can hardly imagine this in our own land, but swarms of locusts probably of different kinds or possibly even the same locusts Some have said that it was the same locust swarm under various stages of development, you know, before they could fly their hopping and whatnot. We don't know which one of those is the case, but either way it was like wave upon wave of different locusts came and what the one left behind, the others behind it destroyed. So it's just wave upon wave of destruction in the land. They ate and destroyed everything. They devoured all of the harvest so that nothing was left. And so what you had in Judah was a severe drought and a severe famine. It affected everything. No aspect of life, as we're going to see in this chapter, was left unaffected or untouched. Even the religion of Israel and the temple was affected greatly by this. No, no aspect of their national life was left untouched by this plague. And, and the next thing we see coming after that is a call to lamentation in verses 5 through 13. Really, most of the rest of the chapter is a call not just to hear and remember, but a call to lament. A call to cry out uh, in this prophecy here in chapter one. In many ways, uh, this call to the various people in Judah to lament their condition, it's kind of a, a not so veiled uh, rebuke at their hardness of heart. You, know, you would think, you know, let's let's you know go back in the Wayback Machine and pretend that we're watching this, that we're seeing what's happening. You would think that wailing and mourning and lamenting would be just the most natural thing in the world for people to do, but apparently when they weren't doing it. They might have been upset about it, but were they grieving before God? did they, did they recognize it as god 's hand of chastisement upon them? Apparently, they did not, and so I think his call on all these people to to lament was a was kind of a rebuke at the fact that they weren 't doing it already it 's like as if the prophet was saying, "What does it take to get your attention? What does God have to do to wake you up and i can 't help but think that 's what 's going on in our own country today as well. Notice the rather different kinds of people that he addresses here in the chapter in verse five. Joel, the Lord says through Joel, he says, awake you what? Awake you drunkards and wail all you drinkers of wine. Then he addresses the tillers of the soil and the vine dressers. In other words, the farmers and the vineyard owners. So you've got the drunkards who are doing nothing productive. They're, you know, probably asleep on the curb somewhere in the gutter. And then you have people that are hard at work just trying to make their living, the farmers and the vineyard owners. And then he calls upon the priests and the ministers of the altar in verse 13. So everybody from the drunkard to the hardworking farmer to the religious leaders of the people are receiving a wake-up call here. It takes all kinds, and all kinds are being called to wake up. And they're all alike instructed to lament and mourn over their circumstances. Not just be upset about it. No doubt they were all upset about things, but they were called upon to lament and mourn over them. Even the drunk, think about this. I mean, think about the irony here. Even the drunkards were given cause to weep and wail in verse 5. Now, they weren't weeping and wailing over the nation's sins, or even over God's judgment, probably His displeasure, but what were they, what were they weeping and wailing about? There's no more wine. The vineyards were destroyed. So at the very least, be upset that you don't have enough to drink. It's, there's gotta be a little bit of irony, I think, there as, as well. The wine had been cut off. That's a, that word is, it implies a picture of judgment. It's a hint of what's to come. Even the wine was cut off from their lips. It's as if they had a cup going to their mouth, and God just snatched it out of their hands. That's what he is saying here. Not only that, but the people were, what he says in verse 8, were to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now imagine imagine the sadness being pictured here of a young virgin who's mourning the loss of her betrothed before her wedding day. It's, it's too heartbreaking to even imagine. I don't know of anybody that's had that, but that kind of thing happen, but I'm sure it's happened. Imagine the heartbreak involved in that, or even a newlywed, and one of them dies. What kind of mourning would that be? It would be some pretty awful... Uh, thing to experience or even to to witness that's how the people the prophet is saying this is how you should be mourning that's the way you should be weeping and mourning and responding to your circumstance if they had any good sense of what was happening why it was happening and what it all meant and as if to impress upon them how awful this chastisement from God was look at verse 9 In verse 9 he says, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. Think about this. What's, what's, What's he saying? He's saying you know, kind of before this had happened, before it got to this point, the people were able to go on in their hardness and heart and their impenitence and unrepentance. They could do all the things they were doing, but they were still able before this to kind of go through the motions of worship. They were still able to go to the temple. They were still able to offer their sacrifices. And what, what did that lead them to convince themselves of? They kind of told themselves, I think the implication is, everything's fine. God, God's okay with all of this because, look, I did all the things I'm doing, but I still come to the temple. I still get to make my sacrifices and offerings. We still get to worship God, check the box, and it's all good. Well, then what happened? God took that away. Doesn't that remind you of what's happening right now, that we're not gathered in the same room that so many of our members have to watch from home and sing from home? And it's a good thing we can do that, but in some ways, I can't help but see a similarity. God had removed, all but removed, the public worship of God from his people. If that didn't get their attention, I don't know what would. Now God's hand of chastisement had even cut off worship from among them. In his commentary on the book of Joel, John Calvin notes, that this is this is kind of the summary of what the prophet was sort of saying, uh, so to speak. He says it's as if the prophet were saying, quote, Why is it that you perceive not that God's fury is kindled against you? For surely except God had been most grievously offended, he would have at least have had some regard for his own worship. He would not have suffered his temple <laughs> to remain without sacrifices. It's like a last resort, Calvin is saying. Surely surely, God would not have allowed his temple to go without in the days of the earthly temple's existence before Christ came. God certainly would not have done that for no reason. Calvin goes on to point out that grain offerings and drink offerings were offered daily, every day in the temple. They were an an important part of the daily goings-on of worship in God's temple. And so for those things to be withheld... For the grain offerings and the drink offerings were to be to be withheld, he says, it was, quote, Doubtless meant to show that the worship of God was nearly abolished. If those daily offerings were done away with, almost nothing was happening. You know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of these shots you see on the news of the, of the L.A. freeways. The only time in your whole life you'll ever see the freeways empty in Los Angeles and no traffic or, or the square in Times Square and no one's walking around. It's like... That's the temple at this time. All of a sudden, there was nothing going on. There was nothing to do. There, were, there was nothing to offer. The priests mourned because their work was cut out from them. They had nothing they could do. And brothers and sisters, I have to ask, should we not see something similar in our own circumstances today? Look at how the worship of God, to use Calvin's word, has nearly been abolished in our land by those in various levels of government. Surely many of them, I'm sure many of them, have good intentions. They're not trying to harm churches, some of them. I think some of them really believe that they're helping and trying to save lives, and and I, I commend them for that. But some of them have openly shown themselves to be hostile to the Christian faith, and all it took was the opportunity of a crisis for them to show their true colors. I think we're seeing what really is in the hearts of some in our government, as well as others right now. Now think about this, the Lord's Supper... The Lord's Supper, now, the Lord's Supper is something that this reminds me of. Because what, what does he say was withheld? Grain offering and drink offering being cut off or withheld from the house of God. Even joy and gladness being cut off from the house of our God. It, I, it can't help for me, to re, but remind me of the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is not an offering. We are not Roman Catholics. It is not a sacrifice. It is not a reoffering of a sacrifice. We do not believe it's that. It is a it is a sacrament. It is a covenantal meal. uh, But it does certainly involve wine and grain. To say the least. It involves the fruit of the vine. It involves bread or grain. It involves joy and gladness. And those things cannot be celebrated virtually. Why is it? It requires the gathered church. You could really say worship requires the gathered church. And so as grateful as I am that we can at least do this and have people, uh, everybody here helping with the music and everything else that we do here, uh, I would honestly say that uh, the essential workers for public worship is the church. All of the church gathered, every member is an essential part of the gathered worship of God's church. And the very fact that we cannot observe the Lord's Supper without the church being gathered should show to those above us in government that this has to change. We, We must be able to gather as the church to truly worship God and partake of the Lord's Supper together. There's only so much that we can do virtually and online. I'm grateful for it. It's not nothing. It's not much, but it's not nothing. And I thank God that we can do this at least this much. But it does grieve me, and I'm sure it grieves all of you, that we are not all gathered here together in person on this Lord's Day for worship. I'm sure it grieves a lot of us as well that... As it should, may God in his mercy enable us by his grace to, to be able to gather together in person and worship soon. And I can't help but think we're going to have quite the full house. Nobody's going to miss that Sunday, and, and there will be some serious celebration when that happens. I look forward to that and pray to God that it might be soon. But in the meantime, should this situation not serve as a wake-up call of sorts for us, as the church in our land today? you know, Remarkably, I've seen... Uh, I'm still shocked that I've seen people say things like this, but I've seen even Reformed Christians, even graduates from solid Reformed seminaries, online denying that this pandemic could possibly be God's punishment for wickedness. They were aghast that anybody would possibly suggest such a thing. I have to say, I don't know what Bible they're reading, if that's the case. I don't know how you read the book of Joel, how you read any book in the Old Testament, even how you read things... In the Gospels, you know, the the Tower of Siloam falling down and people think, oh, what what did they do wrong and what did Jesus say? You're asking the wrong question. You should be asking why it didn't fall on you. He says, you too shall perish unless you repent. He's not saying that that wasn't an act of God's judgment. He's just saying you shouldn't be worried about them. You should be worried about you. You have sins you should repent of. And you shouldn't take the fact that God didn't cause that tower to fall on you as an indication that you don't have sin that you need to repent of. It's God's kindness and, and long-suffering that's giving you time to repent, whereas others he did not. That is the right way to look at this, I believe. Well, that brings us to the third thing in our text, and that is probably the main thing throughout the entire book of Joel, and that's the call to repentance. Repentance something we don't often hear in in many churches today, but we should, and certainly if you're reading the books of the Old Testament and the Prophets, you'll see it and hear it quite a bit. And that was the most needful thing in Joel's day, and it's still the most needful thing in our own day as well. Lamenting and mourning is a good start, and you're not going to repent probably without that, but it's not enough. Sackcloth and even fasting are meaningless apart from prayer, sincere prayer and repentance. All the outward trappings, you could put sackcloth on, you could even fast and You know, Make your face long and and make it obvious to everybody that you're fasting. But unless we are praying and repenting before God, it doesn't do anything. Look at verse 14. Joel says, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Everyone was to fast and gather together for a solemn assembly. What we need is not the church scattered, but gathered in prayer. I think that was the message in Joel's day, and I think that's the message in our day as as well. They were to gather where? To the house of the Lord and their, their God, and to cry out to God, the Lord, in prayer. What does David say in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17? He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Remember, Psalm 51 is one of those great psalms of David's confession of sin and, and repentance and forgiveness. And this is what he says. The, now, David could have given sacrifices, right? The temple wasn't stopped in his day. Or, well, the or tabernacle, rather. But he says, you will not delight in sacrifice. It's not just going through these motions. What God really wants is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart for his sin. And so that's what David did. David came to God broken and contrite in heart and received God's forgiveness and healing. God still delights not in sacrifice or burnt offering, but in a broken spirit. He will not, will not despise, he says, a broken and contrite heart. That's what's needed in our day as well as in Joel's day. And in verse 15, God warns the people through his prophet that something worse than that locust plague was on its way. It was a warning of a far worse judgment to come if they didn't repent. Look at verse 15. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The day of the Lord's judgment had not yet come in full, but it was near. And look at what—look at how he describes it. As destruction from where or from whom? It comes as destruction from the Almighty. It's a judgment of God. They should make no mistake if they failed to repent, what was coming was from the hand of God. And James Boyce writes the following about this. He says, as we get further into the book, we discover that the locust invasion is a foretaste of the coming day of God's judgment and is sent in advance of that day as a warning of it. I think as terrible as that locust plague was, and we don't know how long it it lasted and but we know it, it, whole, nothing was left. It affected everything. And Joel is telling them, there's more. This is a warning. As bad as this is, this is a warning. If you don't repent, God will send something much, much worse. We should view God's chastisements, uh, and I'm not saying ours is as bad as it was in Joel's day, but it's, it's got some similarities. But God's, ju- God's chastisements and temporal judgments, we should view them as hints and warnings of the day of judgment that is to come when Christ returns in glory. These things should remind us that God is the just judge of all the earth, and one day we all must stand before him on that great day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a judgment coming, And the judge of all the earth will do right. Not only that, but look at verses 18 through 20 there. Joel says, the beasts groan because of a lack of pasture. Verse 18, they pant or cry for God. Not only should the people at least show some pity for the sake of the animals. Think about that. It's kind of what he's saying. He's like, if nothing else, look at your animals. Look how destitute these innocent animals are. They've done nothing wrong, but they're suffering for your sins and mine. But he also adds that those beasts, he's, he's kind of saying, those, your beasts, your cattle, your sheep, they put you to shame. Why? Because they at least groan and cry out to God. In their own silent way, their own you know, unintelligent way, they at least cried out in some ways. This is panting, and, and, but the King James says they cry to God. Now, he's not saying they literally prayed. But he's saying in some ways their groaning and their panting and crying was to God for their their sustenance. They looked to God to sustain them. And he's saying that in in a manner of speaking, they put the people to shame because the people hadn't done that yet. Even the animals cried out to God before the people did. And Joel himself, the prophet, determines that even if no one else listened, no one else cried out to God in prayer and repentance, he himself was at least going to do that. Even if the only others who did so with him were the beasts of the field, he says in verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call or cry. By God's grace, may we be of a similar mind and heart as the prophet Joel was here in our text. May we in our own day hear and give ear to the message of the the prophet. May we awaken from our stupor and wail. May we lament our sin and misery. May we be ashamed of seeing God's chastisement and cry out to the Lord together. That's That's what's needed in our day more than anything else. May we as believers in Christ go beyond mere mourning over our present misery and lack and mourn much more over our own sin and the sins of our land for which God has sent judgment. May we cry out to God for mercy, for repentance, and for revival, and for forgiveness, and for healing. Now, as as hard as chapter 1 is to read, I'm going to steal away into chapter 2 just a bit A hint towards what's coming next week, but you know, God, God does not bid us to cry out to Him in prayer for nothing. He does not call us to repent for nothing, does He? He does not, He does not enjoy our misery. He does not enjoy chastising His people. He stands ready to hear and answer. That's why He tells us to pray. We're just too slow to pray sometimes. Look at the very next chapter in Joel verse, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And I hope this is encouraging to you. He says, yet even now, he's saying, even after all this, as bad as it has gotten, as awful as things have been, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And why is that? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What, what did the prophet say two or three times before that in chapter one? What had been cut off from the temple, from the house of God? Grain offerings. And drink offerings. He's saying God may leave a blessing behind and even restore the grain offerings and the drink offerings for the Lord your God. So we must repent and return to our God, and why why should we do that? What what is the encouragement to us to do just that? He says why, right there in verse thirteen. Why should we return and repent and return to our God? Because He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. It is God's kindness, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. So let us take heed to the word of our God. Let's lament and pray and turn back to him, knowing that he really is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in Jesus Christ. And he he really does relent over disaster. Who knows, but that as, as the prophet says, he might turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him even that you and I might have something to offer the Lord our God, and that we might be able to very soon, Lord willing, gather together and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Amen. Let's, Let's pray.